if you're going to win the war, if you're going to win the war, then um, what you need to concentrate on are little battles that help you win the war. Okay? So it, whatever you're in, involved in, if it's, um, try, you're trying to lose weight, you, you win a battle a day, right? If you're, um, if you're trying to improve your financial status, you win a battle a day over excessive spending or maybe over saving or, or something like that. So um, it, it's really true. It's kind of, a, kind of a general principle that if you can be effective in winning the battle, you'll probably win the war when the time comes. Now, we've been talking about for the last three weeks, uh, this unit that we've been studying about uh, talks about post-exile Israel. They've come back to Jerusalem, and they've been tasked with the job of rebuilding the temple in that period of time. Um, we, and we've been reading from Haggai. I've never done this much intensive study in Haggai in my life, and I've really enjoyed what he's had to share with us. We're going to meet a contemporary of his today, Zechariah. Like Haggai, um, Zechariah encouraged God's people to be faithful in completing the rebuilding of the temple project that had actually started 16 years before and had gotten, actually started 18 years before and got stuck 16 years before the, the writing of these books. Uh, just got stuck, got put on hold. Um, and so um, they're going to say to them in, in some ways today that the achievement of this major goal of getting the temple built will be achieved by day-to-day faithfulness. Now I've got to ask you, how are you doing at day-to-day faithfulness? Day-to-day faithfulness and devotion. Tell you the truth, that's really the only way we win this war is by being faithful today, devoted today. Now, um, um, we, we know that Haggai and Zechariah were um, contemporaries because the dates, you, you know, we have sp- fairly specific dating in both books here that we can uh, kind of dig- deal with. Um, uh, Zechariah's book uh, consists of eight visions that were given him during the night. He evidently uh, did what I occasionally do. He ate pizza eight times late at night. And he had a vision in the night. Now, usually my visions after eating pizza late don't go all that well. His actually did. And uh, um, so he's kind of dealing with that. Um, And as Haggai did, all these eight visions have something to do with challenging and encouraging those who are rebuilding the temple. And as Haggai did, Zechariah conveys those messages to the leaders of the people, namely Zerubbabel. We're going to talk a little more specifically about him today who, it turns out, wasn't a lot of trouble, But he got into some trouble. Okay, Zerubbabel, and jo- who was kind of the governor, and then uh, Joshua, who was the high priest. Okay, and they're going to get messages. They've gotten messages from Haggai today. They're going to get messages from, um, from Zechariah. Now, uh, what we're going to talk about today from Zechariah 4 and from right at the end of Haggai describes the fifth of those eight visions And it's especially intended to encourage Zerubbabel, who's kind of the leader of the people. Now, um, I've got to take you uh, to another place. Look back uh, in Haggai 2.6. We looked at um, uh, God, if you just want to look at it for a second. God says, I'm going to shake this place up. 
And we talked about the fact that he probably wasn't talking about an earthquake there, even though we've had a few of those around here lately. He, he talks about he's going to shake this place up. Look at verse um, 21 and 22 as well from uh, right here at the end of Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. So he says it again. I'm going to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms and nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses. And their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. And then he begins with the message that he wants to say to Zerubbabel. I want you to go with me about 12 pages to the right in your Bible. To the first page of the book of Matthew. Okay, keep your finger there. We're coming back. The edge of the New Testament, the leading edge of the New Testament. Okay? And I want you to look at, you remember uh, Zechariah and Haggai have both been encouraging um, Zerubbabel here. Look at verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, by the way, I didn't ask anybody to read this. Jeconiah became the father of Shelatiel. You heard that name? We've mentioned that a few times. And Shelatiel was the father of Zerubbabel. So this is, this is the, the list of kings. Zerubbabel actually is in the lineage of kings here. If it had been a different political day, he could have been a king. So after the exile, here's the list. Jeconiah became the father of Shelatiel, and Shelatiel became the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim. Stick with me. And Achim, the father of Elihud. Now, sometimes um, reading through genealogies kind of helps. I'm going to get there. Elihud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. You've heard that name before. Mathan was the father of Jacob. This is a different Jacob than uh, a couple of thousand years before. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who's called the Messiah. Our friend Zerubbabel was in the line of the Savior. All right? Really important character when you get to thinking about it in that context, right? Is the world going to be shaken up? Oh, you bet. And it's going to be, in many ways... Um, through the lineage of Zerubbabel. Now, Bob, I think I've set you up enough. Would you read verse 23 right at the end of Haggai for us? On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shelatiel, and Ezra, the son of Jeconiah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Shelatiel, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Okay, now, um, the governor... Zerubbabel, you and I might call him a king, is now referred to as my servant, my servant by God. Now, how important is that? Well, it's the same reference. I put a couple of references in here. You can also find some to, to King David. Uh, when you talk about, when they talk about Moses after his life, they're going to call him the servant of God, or God is going to call him my servant. When Joshua passes from the scene, he's going to be called my servant. This sounds like it's really, really um, important here. Now, at, at issue here is a ring. What kind of a ring? A signet ring. 
Not a bathtub ring. That's something else. That's what you get when you put the two-year-old and the four-year-old in the bathtub. You get a bathtub ring, right? This is not that kind of ring. This is a signet ring worn typically on... Um, I've got one from seminary that I don't wear very often. I just wear it when I, you know, I, I don't know why I even ever wear it, but, but it's got an imprint there. Um, a signet ring for a king implied authority. In fact, uh, a signet ring was used as kind of a signature. That's why it was called signet. Uh, in fact, when um, a, an ancient king or even a medieval king would um, need to um, seal a proclamation, they would... Uh, put on it wax or paraffin to seal it, and they would press into it their signet. And what validated that proclamation was the king's imprint from his signet ring on that document. So it, it indicated authority. Now, if I took you over to Jeremiah 22, you would read a story about Actually, it was um, Zerubbabel's grandfather. Um, and I've forgotten off the top of my head, so you Old Testament scholars, you can correct me if you'd like. There was Jehoiakim and Jehoiakin, and I think it was Jehoiakin, but I'm not positive. Would have been Zerubbabel's grandfather. It, Jeremiah says, on behalf of God, uh, Jehoiakim was doing such a poor job and was so corrupt that literally Je Jeremiah has to deliver the message to the king from God. I'm going to take your signet away from you. The authority was going to be removed. And so what we see here in the work, the life and work of Zerubbabel, if for grandpa... He lived during a time where the, the ring was removed from him or the removal of authority. In Zerubbabel's life, what God is doing is reversing that judgment. Here's a faithful servant. Uh, he call, God calls him my servant, and he's going to reverse that judgment here. Um, now, what we got to remember is there's also a reversal of judgment where you and I are concerned in the life and ministry and work and death and resurrection, if I did the math right, of Zerubbabel's ten greats grandson. The ultimate in reversal of judgment is in that act, is it not? So Zerubbabel's kind of setting the stage here. I love this thought that the ring that was taken away from the king is now removed. The authority is replaced. And I love the thought, extrapolated 2,000 years from, uh, certainly um, 500 years from this scene and 2,000 years for you and me, that what Jesus does in my life is he replaces the king's signet on my finger. He reverses judgment. Peter's going to call you a priest and a king. You're Zerubbabel and Joshua all wrapped up in one. And you have the authority that the king has given back to you. It's pretty important. 
especially in the light of what we're going to talk about next. Now, Bob, since you only read one verse. Yes, sir. Ultimately, in my heart, I have been given the authority of God to do what he needs done. Bob, not what I need done. But literally, you and I have become his signet ring in some way. How wonderful is that image? Okay, now, Bob, I'm going to ask you to go just turn the page to Zechariah. All right? Go to chapter 4 and read, if you would... um, Let's start by reading about seven verses, okay? Uh-huh. Go one, to, go one to seven, if you would. It's okay. This is just wonderful stuff. Let me start here, and then we'll kind of carry on through. Now, what the picture you've got to see is of an angel who's kind of um, Zechariah's tour guide in these eight visions. We're in the fifth one, okay, and in this one, he shakes him awake. Now, we think we think that either the vision came while he was sleeping or that the angel would wake him up because he was so exhausted after one of these visions, he went back to sleep. So he wakes him up again. And he says, i got something to show you. And he shows him a lamp, but it's no ordinary lamp. That's what goes in your blank. No ordinary lamp. Now, what you need to envision is a Jewish menorah. Okay? Get that in your head. You know, it's got a, a central, it, it's a one candlestick with seven different, um, uh, what you and I would literally call lamps on it. Okay? Now, this one, though, is fed by a bowl from which comes um, seven channels that are feeding oil into those seven lamps. Okay, that's kind of the picture. This is just no ordinary run-of-the-mill lamp. um, The people of God have never seen a menorah probably before. Okay, now, um, but the question is, as um, Zechariah kind of gets that, but the question is, there's, there's olive trees flanking this, and he's trying to figure out who the olive trees are. So he asked early on, who in the world are these olive trees? And God doesn't answer him yet. I'm not going to answer you yet either. We'll get there in a minute. Okay? Um, who are the olive trees? Now, the oil for the lamps, okay? We've got to go a couple places. In fact, let me stop just for a second to sign some verses to read. Um, Steve Blair, would you mind to go to Isaiah 61.1? I always pick on Steve with the stuff that's hard to find. Isaiah 61.1. Somebody else find Acts 10.38. 
John, would you do that one? Now, John can find the hard stuff too, but okay. All right. And um, then if somebody would prepare to be over at Matthew 13, and we'll go to 31 through 33. Somebody do that? Thank you, Karen. Great. Okay, here we go. Now, what I want to submit to you, the idea of, is that in the Old Testament, okay, in the Old Testament, oil, every time it's mentioned, we're not talking about Beverly Hillbilly's oil here, okay? We're talking about olive oil, okay? Not black gold, Texas tea. We're not talking about that. We're talking about olive oil. Olive oil, remember there are two olive trees. We're going to kind of identify them in a little bit. Olive oil always represents, it seems to me, in the Old Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God. So what I want you to write in that next blank is that... Um, the oil for the lamps symbolizes God's, and would you be careful here, God's spirit. But I want you to, when you write that word, I want you to capitalize it. Because the spirit is not an it. The spirit is a who. The third member of the Trinity. Okay. Now, it's interesting, this idea of anointing, we're going to try to kind of get in here, get into. Okay. Um, let me read verse 4 and 5 that we, we kind of skipped here. Um, actually, he did read those, okay? So you get the idea here. There's an anointing involved in here. And this idea of anointing is always associated with God's Spirit. Look at verse 5. All right? Look at verse 5. So the angel who was speaking to me answered and said, uh, Do you not know who these are? And I said, No, my Lord. It's clear that uh, our friend is kind of ignorant to who uh, these people are or who the olive trees are that he's dealing with here. But it's, it's really clear, and I think Zechariah would know this, that the, um, that the issue here is that God is identifying um, this oil being the Spirit because we know that by the time he gets to verse 6, he's dealing with the work of the Spirit. Listen to it again from the New American Standard. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord by, to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by, and by the way, my Bible capitalizes both my and spirit, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Is it going to be chariots and horses that gets this done? No. Is it going to be human strength? No. It's going to be the spirit, capital S, of God that accomplishes Anytime what, anything that God wants accomplished, okay? Vance Havner, a great evangelist from a former day and a theologian, once said, if the Holy Spirit of God were to be removed from today's church, 90% of its work would go on unhindered. Isn't that Interesting. That's a sobering thought. If the Holy Spirit to be removed in today's church, 90% of its work would go on unhindered. What he was saying is, we do, try to do way too many things in our own strength. Not dependent on, enough on the Holy Spirit, capital S of God, who really accomplishes the work. And so he's bringing this encouragement to Zerubbabel, saying, it won't be by might, not yours or anybody else's. It'll be by my spirit that this gets done. Now, in verse 7, he begins to talk about a mountain. And what I want you to catch as you read verse 7 is the mountain represents obstacles, okay, an obstacle. Now, 
Steve, would you read Isaiah 61 1? Okay, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. Catch that? Anytime anointing, and this is, by the way, uh, when, um, when David was anointed, Samuel poured a bottle, a jar, a goatskin of oil over his head. It dripped down his beard. That's to represent the anointing of the Spirit of God on you. Okay, Acts 10.38. Jesus had that same anointing constantly, never out of relationship or um, out of communication with the Spirit of God. Now, they face a mountain. What's the mountain? The obstacle. What's the obstacle? It's getting this temple built in the midst of uh, some confusion, a lot of criticism, and um, others around them who just don't want it to get built. By the way, why are they being criticized? You remember? And, and that's, kind of, that's kind of appropriate. It's the idea, well, you guys didn't get this work done. So that, that criticism kind of sticks, but there's another criticism that they don't deserve. Do you remember what it is? Ah, they, they really didn't as much as they probably should have, Cindy. But I guess what I'm driving at here is you remember this temple isn't going to be as cool as the former temple of Solomon. Not as big, not as lavish. And so the people, as they're building it, they're saying, look at this. Hovel of a temple, by comparison. You remember there were those in the entourage who would have been living still when, before Solomon's temple was destroyed. And so they're comparing the two, and they're saying, you know what, your little piddly temple is no big deal. God's going to address this in just a minute. But you need to catch that criticism. So what he's saying to Zerubbabel, and later to Joshua, is he's saying, your work is significant. Don't let these obstacles stand in your way. Uh, by the way, Bob, when you read the end of, the, of, of verse 7, um, I, I think you, from, you're reading from the NIV, and I think it said, God bless, God bless. What, did, what is God bless it? Or what did it say? Okay, so the idea is when I do what God has empowered me to do through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is going to bring blessing. By the way, in, in the New American Standard, that word is, transfer, is translated grace. Grace. Wow. Yes, sir. What you need to kind of get in your mind about a capstone is this is the final piece of the project. And Zerubbabel's going to lay that. In fact, uh, he's being encouraged by God here through Zechariah is you're going to get there. You're going to, with your own hands, place that capstone there, the last piece. Okay, now, let's read on a little bit. Um, somebody mind to go to verse 8 and read down through 14. 
<laughs> he still doesn't exactly answer him, does he? I love it. He answers him twice and he says, you don't know who these are. We'll get to it in a minute. Do you know yet? Don't say if you know. Okay, we'll get there in a minute. All right, now, what is God's promise to Zerubbabel? You're going to finish what you started. That capstone, which, by the way, is translated, uh, Steve, what, do you, what translation are you reading from? Uh, it, some places it's translated plumb line, which is interesting, but in, in others it's, it's uh, translated capstone. That final piece of the project, you're going to lay with your own hands. It's going to get done. I couldn't help, okay, couldn't help, but go to Philippians 1.6 in my mind. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. How? In Christ Jesus. What has God started in your life that you wonder, Lord, is this ever going to come to completion? What's the project that you and God have been working on for 20 years? Is there, is there a character flaw that he continually chips away at and to the extent that you cooperate with him, the work gets done? Is it maybe uh, some a great um, mission in life that you're trying to accomplish? And, and, uh, th and there are days when the mountain just seems too high to climb. And God says to you, hang in there. What I began with you, I'll be faithful to complete it in the work of Christ Jesus in you. I need that encouragement, don't I? I think. Maybe on a more regular basis, I need that encouragement. I need to think about that. Now, God's promises is going to get done. And then verse 10, if you look back at verse 10 in chapter 4, who has despised the day of small things? For these seven be glad when they see this plumb line, see this capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. There is so much encouragement here. We've got to just stop off for a minute and deal with it. The question is addressed to those who are doubters. And God says to them, do not dare to doubt or to despise, to denigrate, to minimize the small things. I want you to catch that. I think this is the big message for today. They doubt the validity of this smaller temple, this inferior temple. But God is saying, don't you dare doubt the impact of small things in your life. Now, um, Karen, I think I sent you to Matthew 13. Would you read those three verses there? Jesus values the small. He values the small accomplishments of your life. He values the baby steps that you take day by day by day. In fact, Jesus even values here what he, if I caught it right, Karen, small faith. 
It's not how big my faith is. It's how big my God is, right? And so uh, as he deals with this, and as we go back to the passage now, what has been dealt with is uh, God says, don't you dare denigrate small things in your life. There's a validity to those things. And in fact, he references the sevenfold eye of God that sees. By the way, there's a reference to that in the book of Revelation as well. The idea of the, this sevenfold eye of God is the idea of watchful protection. What you accomplish, even though you think it's small, can I tell you something? Can I make a promise to you? Even though you might think it's not much, God sees it. He sees it. Don't. Don't. What he's dealing with here. This is not a don't sweat the small things passage. In fact, it's just the opposite. Be faithful in the small things, I believe he's saying here. Now, Let's go back to uh, the prophet's question. He asks the question twice. He asks it in verse 4. Now he's asking again, okay, but who are the olive trees? Right? And uh, uh, he asks, uh, God asks him back, don't you know who that is? And Zechariah, this is a good thing, Zechariah admits his ignorance. How many times have I been in a test, like an oral exam with a student, and I've asked them a question that they clearly don't know, have any clue about the answer for, and they vamp for about 10 minutes, just a bunch of, Hooey. Well, to me, that's always meant, I'm thinking, you haven't read your assignment, you don't have any clue what you're talking about. Would you just shut up? I don't say that, that's what's going on in my, that's the soundtrack in my mind. Isn't it wonderful sometimes when I come to God and I say, Lord, I really don't know. Is that a bad thing? According to Zechariah, it's not. Okay, and so he, he, he admits his ignorance here, and so God is going to answer his question, and the answer to the what what are the olive trees is not a what answer. It's a who answer. Okay, it's a who answer. Really, who's being talked about here are the same ones that have been given encouragement in Haggai 1.1 and Haggai 1.12 uh, and 14 in chapter 2, uh, two and chapter 2.4. Uh, Several times, Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor or the king, have been referenced. What's being talked about here in this image, in this menorah that's being filled with golden, with oil from golden bowls through, through golden channels, is the idea that these men are anointed. Now, it's interesting here. I did a little work on this. The word that identifies uh, the anointing of Joshua the priest, the high priest, and uh, Zerubbabel the king or the, or the political leader uh, the word anointed is not the same word from which you and I get in Hebrew the word or the name Messiah. That's a different anointed. Remember, Jesus is called the anointed one. He calls himself that. Uh, the woman at the well in, uh, in uh, John 4 calls her the anointed. You are the anointed one. Okay? That's a different word here. Literally, it, it catch this. This is absolutely beautiful. The word here for the anointed ones... In Zechariah 4, and it's identifying these two olive trees as being the king and the priest. He who is over the politics and he who is over uh, spiritual things. Literally, the word for anointed here means the sons of oil. Can I remind you? 
We're not talking about black gold and Texas tea. The sons of oil are the sons of the Spirit. The ones whose the Spirit has filled them up and is active in their lives and is accomplishing things through them. The one through whom the Spirit flows for a specific task here. Can I tell you something? You are sons and daughters of oil. When you see this picture, it was specifically about two men who had great tasks to accomplish in their day, and the Holy Spirit was flowing through them. Remember, there was a golden bowl with golden uh, um, uh, channels through which that, that oil flew, uh, flowed directly to them. But you've got an even better deal. Post-Acts 2, you have the Spirit alive in you, speaking with you all the time, day and night, 24-7, 365. You are sons and daughters of oil, the anointed ones, to accomplish what God wants to do in your life. And the Bible here is telling you not to shirk your role. Okay, so I'm going to challenge you with that. Don't shirk your role. When God tells you to do something, realize that he's going to give you the spirit to accomplish it. So don't shirk your role. But the second thing he's telling you is much more encouraging. Don't minimize your role either. Does God care about small things? You bet your boots he does. In fact, in his eye, none of it's small. If he called you to do it, it's not a small task. It's a big deal, in fact. Now, so, let me apply this as we close. You and I dare not despise the small things in our life. Well, I didn't do anything but pray. Come on. John Wesley said, until you have first prayed, you can do nothing but pray. Um. Don't despise the small things that you're accomplishing for God. Find your task and do it. Luke 16, 10 that I referenced there, you might want to look it up, just talks about he who's found faithful in little will also be found faithful in much. And secondly, i got to remember what the Lord asked me to do, he's going to empower me to accomplish. He's not going to ask me to do something that he's not going to give me the oil to get done. You ever run your, run your car out of oil? Not fun, is it, Doyle? Rhonda ran ours out of water one time. That was about as bad. It takes oil to function, doesn't it? You're not going to ever, there's an inexhaustible source of oil. Flowing from the throne of God, the Spirit of God, to equip you and empower you and lead you and direct you and even to help you find out what it is that you're what. What you're supposed to accomplish. I encourage you, if you haven't already, to begin to go on an all-out search to find what it is that God wants you to do today and to recognize it ain't small because he called you to do it. And if it seems too big for you, recognize it won't be by your might or by your power. It will be by his spirit that it gets accomplished. 
You guys are the best. Thanks for hanging in with me. See you next week.